that we are in a climate emergency and there is a ticking climate time bomb. And I feel that it's really necessary to break the glass, pull the alarm and rouse the citizenry. And that's what I'm trying to do with this book. I'm trying to alert people to the fact that we have solutions. It's complicated. It ain't easy, but we need to roll up our sleeves and get started. That's John J. Berger, the author of Solving the Climate Crisis, Frontline Reports from the Race to Save the Earth. And this is the latest episode of Climate Conversations, and I'm your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. And I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I was approached several weeks ago from the American publishers of John's new book, Solving the Climate Crisis, to interview John and review the book. I was quite surprised as Climate Conversations on the world stage is a tiny podcast. However, I happily accepted. And here is that conversation now between John and myself. Hey, thanks for joining me. That's wonderful. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. And we began with the interviewee asking the interviewer some questions. How did I get involved with the climate crisis? How did I become a climate activist? John wanted to know. I explained to John, a serious road collision in 1999 almost killed me, but it didn't kill my curiosity. And so in about 2005-2006, I began going to free lectures at the University of Melbourne. And so I've been hooked on it ever since. So since about 2006, I suppose, I've been involved in the climate conversation in one way or another. I've listened to many people all over the world, from all over the world, speak about, like many international climate scientists. I've read many, many books. Um, I must admit, though, that your book is probably the most rounded book I've read for a long time. It sort of covers everything from almost every angle, so I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, thank you so much. That's music to my ears and to the ears of any author, I can assure you. Tell me who will be likely interested in our conversation and what's the climate of public opinion and the interest for what's the appetite for this kind of conversation in Australia? Um, the appetite is strong in certain areas, but where I live in Shepparton in northern Victoria, this is quite a conservative area, and the climate, the idea of the climate crisis hasn't really struck home with many people, I don't think. Although the local council here has declared a climate emergency a few years, oh, about three years ago, um, but I'm not sure they're, they're actually really aware of what a climate emergency means. In my view, that's quite a sweeping idea, but um, they haven't yet come to come to grips with that. I don't think so. So, my as I said before, my audience is really quite small, um, but I live on the hope that just one person of influence will hear what I have to, or what you have to say, what I have to say, and they will act appropriately. So, however, it's important I inject a caveat here. For when I refer to the council, there is a difference between the council itself and the council staff. Some on the council, I believe, have fully embraced the idea of the need for a climate emergency, while on the council staff, it's dramatically different. 
many of those people have taken on board the idea and are doing what they can within the confines of their job to make sure the city embraces the climate emergency idea. Now let's get back to John. Tell me, why did you write Solving the Climate Crisis? I wrote Solving the Climate Crisis for three reasons, Robert. I believe that we have the technology to transform our economy to 100% reliance on clean, sustainable, renewable energy sources. But I believe that we weren't fully using that capability. And I wanted to document it and encourage people to share that perception and to act upon it. Next, I felt that the books that I read about climate change and about climate solutions tended to be awfully narrow. And they looked at this problem very often as a technology adoption problem rather than a broader problem that had an ecological and a social dimension as well as a technological dimension. So I wanted to talk about all of those factors and their critical interrelationship. And and third, I, I know I had another clear, distinctive reason, and I'm trying to reconnect with it. Um, maybe we can come back to that because it was like, super important and it was kind <laughs> of like I, I know what I know I know it's so obvious that it's really in my face and I forgot to mention it and it is really that we are in a climate emergency and there is a ticking climate time bomb and I feel that it's really necessary to break the glass pull the alarm and rouse the citizenry. And that's what I'm trying to do with this book. I'm trying to alert people to the fact that we have solutions. It's complicated. It ain't easy, but we need to roll up our sleeves and get started doing what we can. And I give examples of things that actually work in every dimension of the economy. And I show that we just need to scale these things up and we can zero out our carbon emissions for all practical purposes, certainly in the United States. We have to do that in order to provide an example for others around the world. And later in our conversation, if you like, I can talk about how far we need to go in the United States still. Do you have any hopes for the book? What do you mean by that, Robert? Well, what do you hope will become of it? Will it will it mean something or create some sort of movement or something or change people's minds? I think that in a way that's up to us. I certainly am doing everything that I possibly can to get the book out into public view. And I'm sharing it with people to the extent possible. I have had some foundation support in order to provide 2,000 copies of the book on a complementary basis. And I'm trying to put those copies of the book into the hands of policymakers, resource managers, business leaders, environmentalists, climate activists, youth, professors, librarians, and everybody that I can, anybody who can really use the book, as long as I have a copy in the, in the basement, I'm going to give it to them. I'm, it's not really about making money. I'm not here to make money, and writing would be about the worst way I would ever recommend anybody try to make a living. But I do want to see change result. And as I said, I believe that we are 
in a climate emergency, the house is literally, our house, our home on earth is on fire. And instead of calling the fire brigades and putting the hoses to work and putting the fire out, we're throwing gasoline on the flames. Who do you think needs to read the book? I think all of the groups of people that I just mentioned need to read the book. You mentioned uh, the book is written in memory of George Helmholtz. Who was he? George was a friend of mine. He was the son of um, Carl and Betty Helmholtz. And Carl was a physicist at UC Berkeley. And both Carl and Betty supported my early work in environmental restoration when I wrote a book called Restoring the Earth, How Americans Are Working to Renew Our Damaged Environment. And I started an organization called Restoring the Earth. And Carl and Betty helped support that organization financially. And then when they passed away, George became aware of my climate book and my climate research, I should say. And I've written a number of climate books. And George was kind enough to provide me some additional financial support at critical times because it's really expensive to handle the overhead of writing and researching and traveling around the world and doing these interviews and having them transcribed and then writing and having it edited. And it's it's a big undertaking and I'm not a wealthy person. So I, I very much appreciate the work, I mean, the help of people like George Helmholtz. And I wanted to express my gratitude by dedicating the book to him. As I read the book, I, the idea of time never left my thinking. Um, we don't really have time for a long, drawn-out negotiation. So what do you think we do? That's a difficult question when you pose it in that manner, because I'm not sure if the focus of the question is on diplomacy or is it on technology or natural climate solutions or political solutions if you can help me out here and clarify the sharpen the focus of that question i could give you a better answer for sure yeah i think it's on political primarily how do we how do we advance things more quickly without getting bogged down in political arguments I I don't know that we can avoid arguments. I think arguments go with the territory. But my perception is that the, the public in the United States has been badly divided, and we need to try to do whatever we can to unify the public um, on the issue of dealing with the climate emergency. The climate emergency is not a red or green emergency. It's not a democratic emergency. By say red or green, I mean, you know, red state, blue state, Democrat, Republican. It's a an existential crisis for civilization and humanity. And we have to view it in those terms and try to get people to transcend their petty differences Unfortunately, there are political leaders who try to advance their own personal interests by inflaming differences and trying to fragment the electorate. That is a traditional divide and rule strategy that probably goes back to Machiavelli. We have to try and work against it and see that the climate movement, insofar as possible, speaks with a unified voice 
there is a certain fragmentation that I perceive in the American environmental movement, which on the whole, I'm a devotee of. I've worked for organizations like Friends of the Earth, and I founded, co-founded, I should say, um, the Nuclear Information and Resource Service, which is an organization that provides information on safe energy to the public. And I also founded the Restoring the Earth organization. So I'm not anti-environmental group by a long shot, but I do feel that we in the environmental movement have to somehow coordinate our efforts and our voice. And we have to build a much broader, deeper coalition of stakeholders who have pecuniary interests in solving the climate crisis. Because as we solve the crisis, we are going to be generating millions of jobs in the United States, and we're going to be saving trillions of dollars on energy by making the whole economy more energy efficient and by avoiding wasting money by setting fuel on fire on a daily basis and instead using fuel-free, clean, sustainable, renewable energy. I hope that somehow that that addresses your question, even if it doesn't completely solve it. It's a difficult, difficult challenge. I want to say one more word about it, namely that these things don't happen overnight, Robert, obviously. And as this, they say, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single footstep. But we have to start and we have to try. If we think that it's not worth doing, that's, I think, an insane attitude. And if we if we think it's too difficult because we might fail, I think that's misguided as well. I think the only thing that's guaranteed is that if we don't try, we're not going to succeed. We have to give this uh, a try and make our utmost effort. And everybody needs to bestir themselves and find a little time to support those groups that are working on these issues and that have trained professionals who can address specific challenges. So that's, I think, the direction that we need to move in. Why should I care about the climate crisis? I don't. I I don't know <laughs> enough about you personally as to to answer that on a personal basis. But in terms of why the average person should care, I I think that we're here, and I'm not a religious person, but the metaphor that comes to mind by the grace of God, and so I think we need to be grateful for this planet and not destroy it in the short run, but preserve it and enhance it for other generations. And I think that if we allow climate disruption to proceed uh, on its present course, we are going to be causing the extinction of millions of species. Now, on a pragmatic basis, we're also going to be causing and are causing millions of unnecessary deaths from fossil fuel air pollution every single year globally. We're causing millions of people to become climate refugees. We're causing the national security interests of the United States and many other nations to deteriorate because climate is like a sledgehammer that kind of hammers the ecosystems and, and it kind of 
is a force multiplier for all sorts of inherent um, damaging tendencies and and um, problems that we're facing that are bad enough without layering climate change and the cascade of damaging environmental impacts on top of everything. I think the danger is, Robert, that if we do not address this, we are um, putting at risk our civilization. And I mean that not in a, an abstract or metaphorical way, but I mean that literally, because when we have a multiplicity of climate disasters, and some of them exacerbate each other, forest fire, for example, in places that hardly ever burned, and, and now we're destroying the tropical rainforest, and there are land clearances that that um, are sort of interacting with the climate processes so that the so-called lungs of the earth, the Amazon itself, is beginning to die in places and dry out. Um, we just cannot allow this to happen. It's not something that, that we can um, reconcile ourselves to. We, we have to begin mobilizing the world, the public, and unify ourselves to see that this doesn't happen. As I said, climate change is a force multiplier that accentuates and aggravates all of the crises that we're now facing. And, and when I say civilization crisis, we are finding now with all of the refugees and all of the wars, some of them enhanced or exacerbated by climate change, that the social safety net is already being strained nearly to the breaking point or past it in many cases. Now, if on top of that, you compound all of these problems, the social safety net is just going to disintegrate. And when that happens, then we lose public order and public order deteriorates and we eventually have chaos and we we will have um it the 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 economic social and political environmental costs of this are just horrific and incalc incalculable so we just cannot allow this to happen John, I'm intrigued with about your background. Like, where did you get? Where did you come from? And where did you get? How'd you get to where you are now? Goodness gracious, <laughs> Robert, that's an awfully big question. That is a big question. Isn't it? I, 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 again, if you can tell me whether what you're interested in is my educational background or my motivational background, I, um, you know, I was born and raised in New York City by parents that, um emigrated from Hungary to the United States, and they were kind enough to give me a chance to be exposed to nature. And we used to take walks in the evening in Riverdale, New York. And I enjoyed sniffing the flowers. My mother was always very, very responsive and attuned to nature and I remember walking with them and smelling the honeysuckle and tasting the little stamens I guess of the honeysuckle flowers and I walked along the river the Hudson River nearby where we lived and one of the neighbors was kind enough to take me along the river as a little boy we picked wild raspberries and I enjoyed the outdoors and as a kid 
I was kind of a free range child. We weren't as constrained as children when I grew up as we are today. So I had a great time outdoors when I was 14. I went out to the Adirondacks with um, a high school teacher and a group of boys. And we had a two week canoe trip from lake to lake in upper New York state. And then later I went and explored the national parks. And I remember reading a National Geographic book about the national parks that really turned me on to nature and got me excited about it. And so I've, I've always had this love of nature. And my concern about the climate is an extension of that, but it's also an extension of the fact that I began my professional career first as a journalist and then a writer. And I was very worried back in the 1970s, believe it or not, about the dangers of nuclear power. And so I wrote a book that was critical of nuclear power and called attention to all of the economic problems, the nuclear waste problems, the nuclear terrorism problems, the, the proliferation issues, and so forth. And I felt like, well, if I'm going to be telling people we shouldn't use nuclear power, it's incumbent on me to tell people what should we use. And at that time, and believe it or not, still today, I hear people saying, well, we've got to use big nuclear power plants because if we don't, we're going to have to use coal power plants. And that's a lot worse than nuclear power. But the problem is that's a false dichotomy. And so that's what I showed in my very first book, Nuclear Power, The Unviable Option, where I devoted a substantial part of the book to clean energy alternatives. And from there, I continued to study and I learned about environmental restoration. I got I got active in trying to advocate for it. And also along the way, uh, I was interested in seeing the evolution of the clean energy technologies that I started writing about in the mid 1970s and discovered that they were making huge advances. So in the mid 1990s, I wrote a book called, Re, what was it called again? Charging Ahead, The Business of Renewable Energy and What It Means for America. And that actually attuned me a little bit more closely to the connection between renewable energy and solving the climate crisis. So then I began to add study of climate to my repertoire and I started writing books like Beating the Heat, How and Why We Must Combat the Climate Crisis. And then I wrote a book called um, Climate Peril and Climate Myths and eventually got around to writing Solving the Climate Crisis. Um, that, that's pretty much the, the thought lineage of this book. John, you mentioned solar power. So the sun generously delivers more energy, or you, or you write this, the sun generously delivers more energy in an hour than all of humanity uses in an entire year. So how far are we from being able to capture that and make use of it? Well, um, we're doing a good job of capturing solar energy. We can't capture it all, and we wouldn't want to. There are lots of other things on the planet that need solar energy. But um, solar photovoltaics increased by a record 270 terawatt hours in 2022, which is up by about a quarter over 2021. And it accounted for about four and a half percent of total global electricity generation. 
and it's the third largest renewable electricity technology behind hydropower and wind. The global market size is expected to reach um, getting on towards $400 billion a year by 2029, and it's growing at around 7%. That's the forecast for the next seven years. And the U.S. consumption of renewables is expected to grow over the next 30 years at an average rate that's about five times faster than the overall growth rate in energy consumption. So we are succeeding in deploying renewable energy technology. And that was just the status of solar power because you asked about the sun, but we're also making headway in deploying clean energy from the wind, geothermal power. There are um, more experimental or less widely commercialized wave power technologies, and we're making great progress in bringing the cost of batteries down as well so that we can cleanly store renewable energy. Uh, the cost of solar energy has fallen unbelievably much, like about 99% in the past 30 years. Don, you write about Seattle's Seattle's Bullet Center. So can you tell me about that? The Bullet Center is the brainchild of Dennis Hayes. And Dennis Hayes is the fellow that sort of put Earth Day on the map with Senator Gaylord Nelson, who was also the governor of the state of Wisconsin. And uh, Dennis... I, I I tell a lot about Dennis in person uh, and his story and how he came to be uh, tuned in to the need for buildings like the Bullet Center. But it builds itself as the world's largest green building. And it's a six-story commercial office building in downtown Seattle that produces all its own energy from solar power. And it sends the surplus back to the utility. And it also supplies its own water through rainwater harvesting. And it responds to the environment almost like an organism. It has sensors that detect and transmit the temperature, the wind speed, the sunlight, and precipitation all to the building's custom software, which then adjusts the building's cooling and heating and water systems. Overall, the building uses about 17% as much energy as a comparable commercial office building. And over its lifetime, it's going to generate about $13 million in carbon reduction benefits. So that's kind of a prototype of what we need to be doing in our um, commercial construction throughout the uh, throughout the United States and throughout the world. And it shows that it is possible to be energy self-sufficient and also to be water self-sufficient. And, and this in one of the cloudiest places in the United States. So have we got many buildings like that in the US or around the world that you know of? Are there many? Well, the Bullet Center is one of only 10 so-called living buildings that have met very stringent environmental criteria, I mean, dozens of criteria, so that the building itself uses non-toxic materials in its construction. And that goes down to, you know, the level of the adhesive and the flooring and so forth. Um, what are the other types of criteria? I, I mean, 
it's it's built to last two and a half centuries, so it's not going to be a disposable building, and and that's to prevent the the waste of raw materials. So it's a the building is very very um, environmentally conscious, or mm. I, I mean, the, the obviously the building itself is just inanimate, but. It, I talk about it like it was animate, but the people who built it used a, a great deal of, of uh, collaborative effort and technology and concern for the environment. And it's a like state-of-the-art, cutting-edge, clean building. We have to do things like this all throughout our urban economy because um, 4 billion people in the world now inhabit cities. And cities produce three quarters of all of our greenhouse gases. And by 2050, two thirds of the entire world is going to be urban. So we cannot solve the climate crisis unless we fix our cities, which today, as I say, are producing three quarters of all of our greenhouse gases. John, you're right about the fact that we need 100% clean transportation. So can you explain that to me? Um, in the United States, the transportation sector uses 36% of our primary energy consumption. Where does that come from? 90% of it comes from petroleum. We have to shift every mode of transportation to electricity and to hydrogen fuel cells and thereby avoid reliance on fossil fuels and on the production of CO2 for propulsion. It's pretty much that simple, but implementing it is a quite complex undertaking. John, is there any room within that clean transportation idea for human-powered transport that's walking and cycling? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I think in the United States, uh, let me remember the statistics here, something very surprising, I think, um, 28% of all of our trips in the United States are under one mile in length. And those are trips that are normally taken by vehicles. And I think 50% are under uh, five miles. And then probably three quarters are under uh, 10 miles. So many of our trips are short and we could accomplish them easily with bicycles on foot or by um, small um, urban mobility, even by neighborhood electric vehicles where necessary. Um, these these are small light vehicles that are allowed in the United States on roads that are zoned for up to 35 miles per hour. And yet some of them can be built to carry cargo over, a, you know, almost two tons of cargo. And in addition, we have electric bikes, electric scooters, electric motorcycles, and we don't have to have, everybody doesn't need to have a car. We can also use some public transit. We should be using electric buses and hydrogen fuel cell buses, but I believe electric buses are the battery, electric buses are the way to go. In the United States, only 1% of our railroads are electrified. We should change that and make it 100% because not, well, for a whole host of reasons, but diesel engines are very polluting and they're also reliant on fossil fuels and they generate 
CO2 and release it in addition to all of the bad air pollutants, they only get about a third of the energy in the fuel that's transmitted to the wheels of the train. Whereas if you have an overhead wire carrying power to a railroad, um, 95% of that energy is going to wind up driving the wheels of the train. So it's much more efficient and it's going to be uh, cost effective. And in fact, an electric locomotive is cheaper than a diesel locomotive and it doesn't use as much um, doesn't require as much maintenance. So it's a good deal all around, but we need policies to overcome financial hurdles and political hurdles to getting that done. It's the same way in all these other sectors of the economy. We know how to do it. We can save money doing it. It's economical. And if we do this across the economy, not just in the United States, but in other countries, we can avoid the 6 to 29% of global GDP that will be destroyed by climate change, according to one estimate, I believe it's the International Energy Agency that came up with that, but I might be mistaken. John, let's talk about dams for a moment. On page 71 of your book, you say that the removal of dams in the US makes US rivers more resilient to climate change, and that's undoubtedly the case here in Australia, but many people want more dams built. How do we convince people that they're actually an impediment to resilience rather than a benefit? People see see water here just flowing into the ocean and they say, why don't we build more dams? Why don't we build more dams? And it's difficult to convince them that they're the wrong way to go. How do we do that? I, I think that certainly all, different dams have different um, utilities. And I think um, a great many dams are um, in disrepair in the United States and are not really needed any longer and they have um, dire environmental consequences for the watershed where they block fish migration. But in other cases, in, in cases where the dam is producing electricity, it's been in place for a long time, often you can just repower it and increase the power without increasing the environmental impact of the dam. So I'm, I'm not an expert on hydropower, but this is, uh, I guess, getting at your question, even if not totally resolving it. You write about the three R's in relation to dams, let's rehabilitation, retrofitting and removing. How is that going generally? Well, in, in the... Uh, retrofitting, I was just describing how a dam can be increased in its um, generating capacity. Maybe it's maybe it's raised a couple of feet or maybe the generators are replaced and modernized. I don't know the engineering details, but the environmental impact is, has already been done. It's quite difficult to remove dams, although that is beginning to happen. And so I think there was a grand bargain struck by uh, Dan Riker, who is um, a professor at Stanford University and who also has spearheaded a collaborative um, discussion process between environmentalists and the hydropower industry. And they struck a bargain where they would support 
uh, legislation that would provide money for those three R's that you just mentioned, then just minimize environmental impact and maximize environmental benefit. Your idea of um, functional precipitatory democracy wanders into many other political ideologies. And so how do you see it working in relation to the climate crisis? How do we, in other words, Robert, just let me try to make sure I've heard the question accurately. Yeah, you were talking about precipitatory democracy. That clashes with many other political ideologies. So how how do you see that working in relation to the climate crisis? Well... The bottom line is that we have to protect our threatened democracy in the United States and everywhere in the world, because if we lose our democracy, we will um, lose our ability to protect the climate. The two are very, very closely tied. Uh, You don't find that despots and authoritarian governments care about public welfare or the environment. And we saw that during the Trump administration, then President Trump actually uh, dismissed climate science and um, had contempt for climate scientists and for um, environmental concerns of all kinds. If he were to return to the presidency in uh, 2024, I'm sure that he would not be supportive of any program that disadvantaged the fossil fuel industry and that is necessary for the protection of the climate. It would be a total, utter disaster for the climate and for the world and for the United States because he's basically sworn to get vengeance on his political opponents. So... That That is my view about participatory democracy. We need it today more than ever, not only in and of itself, but as a way of um, enabling public participation so that we can protect the climate. If the government is ruled primarily by uh, special interest groups, dark money, and lobbyists, then ordinary people who care about the environment and care about something other than maximizing profits for the fossil fuel industry and for big corporations will be left out in, uh, I don't say the cold, but in the heat in this case. I've got a question here about the key conclusions of your book. I might add that when I read the uh, conclusions, I was inspired and I thought I should do something right now. Um, So what are the key conclusions for you from your point of view? What, in other words, Robert, to just try to put a finer point on this question, are you asking me um, what someone like yourself should do or what an individual should do as an ordinary citizen? Uh, probably what an individual should do. Well, I th- think this is the quintessential all-hands-on-deck moment for ourselves and for the next generations, that we all have a part to play and we each need to show up and play that part. But I can't tell somebody else exactly what that part is because it depends on their skills and capability and commitment and history and so forth. But the important thing is that 
no matter who we are, that we all show up as powerfully and authentically as we can in our own way and do something. Because to sit idly by and do nothing because, and you can fill in the blank here with your own favorite excuse, that's not acceptable in the time of a national and global crisis. So I tell people, stay engaged with the political process. Keep your voter registration up. Uh, vote in elections. And then regularly urge elected representatives to vigorously support ambitious climate solutions. And let those officials know that your vote depends on their support for a quick, clean energy transition and get them on the record publicly. And then vote for candidates who promise to take meaningful action on climate issues and hold them accountable. Call them frequently, call their offices, write them letters and send them e emails and knock on their office doors and request meetings and personally attend their town hall meetings and join and become active in grassroots groups of citizen activists that are working on these issues. And just don't panic at how bad things have gotten because that's not going to be helpful in a crisis. That's that's when we need clear, rational thought and purposeful, determined action. So don't despair and don't let naysayers frighten you into believing that there's nothing meaningful that you as an ordinary citizen can do to address the climate crisis. That's basically a cop-out for those people who don't want to do anything. And then instead, to justify their own inaction, they're questioning the motives of all the other good people working as hard as they can to protect the earth. So by to, to boil it all down, take action in community with others. That's the best cure for despair. And keep learning and educating others about the nature of the crisis and stay informed and don't turn away from it because the news is sometimes difficult to watch. And also don't be misled that your lifestyle choices are going to save the climate and that if you can't do them for financial reasons or other reasons, then you personally are responsible for the climate crisis. That is a big myth the fossil fuel industry would like us to swallow. So don't believe that these little green gestures like taking a cloth bag to the grocery store, which is maybe a worthy thing to do, but it falls short of what we can accomplish if we put all our energy and hope into organizing together for massive policy changes that need to be made really, really quickly to transform our economy to 100% clean energy. John, you spent some time writing about the Dogwood Alliance, which I think is a fascinating name, but can you tell me something about that? What is it and where did the name come from? Uh, I think the name came from the Dogwood Tree, which is prevalent in the American South. And um, Dana Smith has been organizing to protect um, local forests and to try to get paper companies to be more environmentally responsible as they source paper pulp. And she's also worked internationally to try and overcome the enthusiasm that some people have shown in the environmental movement for burning biomass as a way of generating electricity. And I contend in my book, based on science that's been pioneered by Dr. Mark Jacobson at Stanford University, we don't need biomass 
it's now producing maybe, I don't know, three or 4% American electricity, but it is air polluting. And wood pellets that came out of the American South, um, some of them came from forests that should never have been cut down and that were great uh, storehouses of carbon. So Dana Smith has been in the forefront through the Dogwood Alliance in trying to defend forests and oppose um, the pelletizing of forests and their burning in power plants when instead we can get all of our electricity cleanly from clean renewable energy. You say the U.S. needs a climate emergency declaration or action plan. So is that likely to happen or do you see any future in that? Well, I do. I I think that it's inevitable that we have to have a declaration of a climate emergency. I'm not in a position to to say how likely it is or in any particular time frame, but I know that it has to happen. It would be very helpful to wake people up and to um, engender the kind of conversation about it that would be productive and would focus people on what needs to be done. I think that we not only need a climate emergency declaration, but along with it, we need a national mobilization on the issue of climate change, not just in the United States, the other countries, so that we make this our top priority as a nation here, that we encourage other nations to prioritize it as well. We prioritize all kinds of things that are far less consequential and that kill far um, fewer people and that cost a lot less money and that have much less existential and civilizational risk. To me, it's crazy that we haven't declared a national climate emergency already and that we are not mobilized nation nationally the way we mobilized, let's say, um, at the time of World War II when Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, rallied America and he had um, a democratic Congress, a democratic, in other words, democratic Senate, democratic House and a democratic administration was thereby able to pass sweeping legislation that put America on a war footing and made it from uh, a country that was not um, especially um, prepared militarily to the world's greatest military power, which won the war in, in uh, over the Axis powers, not alone, of course, but with its allies, triumphed over Hitler and Mussolini and and the Japanese as well. John, does our combined failure to do anything serious about the climate crisis make you angry or disappointed or what happens there? You're asking me about my own personal emotions, and Yeah, how do you feel about this, that we don't seem to be doing anything it's frustrating. I've been watching this um, situation, this crisis for decades now. I am frustrated. I do grieve about the condition of the earth and about people that are harmed by climate change and by the catastrophes that we see happening all around us. But I try to keep myself engaged and I try to, um, I try to 
remain active and I try to do whatever I possibly can, knowing that I can only put a drop in the bucket, but I just try to put that drop into the right bucket. That's about all I can do. I don't have control over all of these um, global issues, obviously, but I think that individuals do have far more power than they think they do generally. And I think Margaret Mead has some famous quote about about the power of you know individuals. She said, can a few individuals change the world? Yes, it is the only thing that ever has. I, I also like the quote by Eamon Hennessy, who said, never underestimate the power of a committed individual. Um, my old boss at Friends of the Earth, Dave Brower, used to say, polite conservationists leave no, no mark save the scars on the earth that could have been prevented had they stood their ground. And John Muir himself, the 19th century and early 20th century um, conservation giant would say, tis dogged that does it. In other words, we have to be implacably and doggedly persistent in defense of a safe climate and a healthy environment and a safe future for our children and a green planet with other species protected from extinction so that they can thrive and multiply and not dwindle and disappear as we are now seeing. So I, I believe we are in a crisis. I think we need to have um, a national emergency declaration, national mobilization, and also a national climate plan because, you know, without a plan, you're, desire for something is really just a wish and we need a very comprehensive scientifically sound um, plan that that addresses um, sort of a scenario planning um, effort to put the entire country as cost effectively as possible and as speedily as possible on the path to a clean energy economy. John, Professor Michael, Professor Michael Mann has been vocal about people avoiding doomism. And so that's accepting the fossil fuel industry's argument that it's all too late. So what do you say about that? The, the um, negativity, the idea that we cannot do anything, is that what? Yeah, like believing the fossil fuel argument that it's too late, there's nothing we can do, so we might as well just party to the end. No, I think that that's demonstrably false. And there are thousands of scientific papers that refute that. It's, it's basically nonsense. And it's put out by people who would like to see everyone relinquish their autonomy. We had some connection problems about here, but now John is back. I'm saying that I think that that's simply untrue. There's a lot of scientific evidence. It's a belief that perhaps the fossil fuel industry would like us to adopt because it will foment apathy and allow them to have their way and continue to try to maximize their profits, which is what they are focused on and will continue to be focused on. I, I don't think there's any merit in the argument that um, 
we're doomed and we can't do anything about it. I think that that's something that the fossil industry, fossil fuel industry might be putting out in order to foment apathy and cause people to become disengaged and demoralized and thereby the fossil fuel industry could have its way. And its way is to focus on maximizing profit and minimizing concern for the impacts of burning fossil fuels. The fossil fuel industry today has vast expansion plans and they are in the process of pursuing about 195 global carbon bombs that are being financed by major multinational banks all over the world. So is there something else you'd like to say about solving the climate crisis, John, about the book? So you asked me if there was one final thing that I would, uh, and I think that what I'd like to say is that solving the climate crisis is not um, incredibly um, beyond our means because the funding doesn't have to come exclusively from the public sector through various forms of loan guarantees and interest rate buy-downs. The um, public sector can actually trigger the flow of trillions of dollars of investment capital from the private sector in order to finance the clean energy transition. We should be clear that these front-end investments are not costs in the sense that we're kissing this money goodbye, but many of these investments will pay for themselves two and three times over, and they also will avoid the hideous costs of the climate emergency by reducing the impacts of climate change on the economy and on the earth. So they, it, it makes great sense to make these investments, which are very affordable. If, if we're interested in actually defeating the fossil fuel industry and imposing the public good over private good in this controversy over our energy policy, I think we need to work very hard to the fuel industry um, less coddled and less profitable. And we have to win over the fossil industry, meaning not win them over because they're not going to come over voluntarily. But we need to basically stop subsidizing the fossil fuel industry to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And we need um, past, um, a national carbon fee and dividend to make fossil fuel relatively more expensive than clean energy alternatives. It's already, for power generation, it's already um, at a disadvantage relative to solar and wind. But we need to make sure that economically financing from these mobile banks that are enabling fossil fuel expansion, which, as I said earlier, is threatening global efforts to reduce emissions and protect the climate. We, we can't, at the same time, throw fuel on the fire of the climate crisis and expect that it's going to go away. If you look at the trajectory over the past decades, we've been constantly increasing our 
carbon emissions, and we've been increasing the um, concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. If we want the temperature to go down, we have to first plateau and then reach net zero carbon emissions and then begin to use natural climate solutions in order to actually uh, withdraw CO2 that's now in the atmosphere so that we can begin bringing the CO concentration, CO2 concentration back towards its pre-industrial level. We don't have to get all the way there, but we have to stop increasing it and then we have to zero out our greenhouse gas emissions. If we do that within two or three years, the temperature will begin to decline and, and then we can continue on that trajectory. John, John, I understand your book is already is it just been published, is that right? Yes, that's correct. It has been published by Seven Stories Press and Solving the Climate Crisis, Frontline Reports from the Race to Save the Planet or the Earth is available um, pretty much everywhere books are sold. It's on Amazon. It's on Seven Stories Press's website. Um, we have a website that is called solvingtheclimatecrisis.us that people can go to. It's everywhere on the web and in bookstores. Yeah, thank you so much, John. It's been a delight to talk with you. You make an interviewer's job really simple. Again, thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for taking an interest in my work. I really do appreciate it. Yes, here we are at the end of another episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you along. Now, please don't forget to check out the show notes. You'll find links in there for the book, Solving the Climate Crisis, and the website, Solving the Climate Crisis. My thanks especially to John Berger, because he was amazingly patient. Thanks, John. Now, I'd love you to follow this podcast, because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. Also, I'd love to hear from you. What do you think about this podcast? Good or bad? Don't hold back. Please let me know. And you can contact me via email at r.mclean, the number seven, at icloud.com. Good or bad, don't hold back. Let me know. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Now, take care.